The Holy Gospel according to Matthew, the 18th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if you won't listen, take one or two others with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven again. Truly I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Please be seated. And let us pray. Gracious God, send forth your Spirit by the power of your Word to create faith, to forgive sin, and to grow our love for you and for one another. Amen. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am among them. On June 18th of this summer, Elizabeth Brunig, opinion writer for the New York Times, wrote this. She actually tweeted this, but you know I like to say wrote better than tweet, because tweet just sounds too, I don't know, millennial. Um, there's just something unsustainable about an environment that demands constant atonement, but actively disdains the very idea of forgiveness. Let me read that one more time. There's just something unsustainable about an environment that demands constant atonement, but actively disdains the very idea of forgiveness. When it comes to sin, there's only two reactions. There's no gray area. We like to pretend that there's a gray area, but there's basically only two reactions. Either one, recompense, the pound of flesh, or two, forgiveness. We can pretend like we can ignore it, a wrong that has been done to us, but it always comes back to nag us, doesn't it? We always remember. You only have to be married for a short time to figure this out, right? Well, you remember last month when you didn't put your socks in the hamper? Men, talking to you. So many different things can come up. They can be trivial, they can be major, but the reality is, is that we, we basically have to live in one of those two worlds. One of desiring victory, desiring atonement, sacrifice, that pound of flesh is, the how, is how I talk about it, or forgiveness, redemption, erasure, sin not existing. We can't ignore it. And I'd ask you to look around our society today. Look and see what you recognize of the discussions that are had. What is discussed in news, in the papers, in magazines, on the internet. Do we find grace? Do we find mercy? Do we find forgiveness? Or is there something else that we seek, that we find there, whether we want to or not? Things that often amount to atonement, payment, sacrifice, expectation of, you did this to me, therefore I demand such and such. And so the problem that we run into is that then we're this child of this parent 
Many of us were in this position. Actually, I'm betting that all of you were the child at one point in time, but you walk up to your sibling and you punch them dead in the face. They cry to mommy or daddy, right? Mommy or daddy intervene. Usually some sort of punishment ensues. And then you are dragged to that sibling and what are you told? Now say sorry. And how does it usually come off? Sorry! And then what's the response of the parent usually? Say it like you mean it. And you usually get the, I'm sorry. And then they go off and go about their, their business. I use that as an illustration all the time because it's the way that our world works. Right now especially. We're seeking outward moral behavior. Some sort of form of ritual, some sort of form of liturgy that we can adhere to without any inward transformation whatsoever. Because usually what happens with that four-year-old is later on they try and figure out a way to pay back their sibling for the embarrassment that they had at the parent bringing them to say, now say you're sorry. It creates this animosity. It doesn't create a transformation in that child. It angers them, if anything, because of the shame, because of the guilt of being caught in whatever it is that they did. And that's actually the truth of the way the world works. The second language of the world is law. It's condemnation. It's the way we speak all the time. We expect transactionalism in our moral behavior. We expect it in how we live. We don't expect reconciliation. We don't expect forgiveness. And often we don't seek it. It hit me this week in, in a few different levels. One, uh, those of you who pay attention to social media at all, um, the singer Adele posted a picture of herself bemoaning the fact that a music festival that she normally sings at was canceled because of COVID. And she was just bemoaning that fact. Someone noticed that she had a particular hairstyle that um, has some cultural overtones, I guess. And now she's called racist just because she posted a picture. There's no, there's no understanding of internal intentions. It's only looking at outward behavior. Say you're sorry and mean it. Or we can think back just a couple of weeks. Some of you saw the picture of the, uh, of the, the woman eating outside at a restaurant in Washington, Washington D.C. surrounded, being harassed by protesters screaming at her because she will not do the ritual of holding her fist up in solidarity with racial injustice. Screaming at her because she's not doing the outward behavior, never mind what her internal feelings are on the matter. Or another one that, that came this week, a communications professor at USC was teaching a class and he was talking about how Every language has filler words. You know, like for us, for English, it's um, er, uh, like. I just used it. And then he was talking about how in these other languages, like in Chinese, his example was, and he, and he said this word. Well, it had a very close ring to a racial slur. And now he's called a racist. Even though what he was talking about had nothing to do with it. It was because he said something that was outside our expectations of the ritual our expectations of the liturgy that we want, of outward moral behavior, never mind his internal intentions, because for all we know, he's marching. He's protesting. But because our ears have been tuned to a certain way of thinking, 
in the world around law and condemnation. We seek that outward righteousness because it's something that we can see because actual righteousness, actual internal working, transformation is hard. We'd rather go through the motions and pat ourselves on the back than actually think of Think of any transformation that might actually have to take place. Well, some of you are saying, well, pastor, what the heck does this have to do with that, with that verse uh, uh, where two or three are gathered? I am there in, in the midst of them, uh, um, among them. Well, I'll get to that in like two seconds. You'll just have to bear with me. But let me take this verse first, that the way we normally use it is actually outside the context of our gospel reading this morning. Usually we use it as a time in which we look and we see a small group of people gather when we usually expect more, and that's our default verse that we go to. Well, pastor, where two or three or more gathered, there he is in the midst of them. Which is true. Christ is here in our midst, regardless of whether we have 400 people or three. But I also know that for you, when you were sitting in your favorite chair this morning with your Bible open, Jesus was there with you, even when you were by yourself, because his word was open in front of you. But the problem is, is that this verse within its context actually loses its meaning because the traditional way of understanding this passage is actually one of outward righteousness, moralistic behavior, church discipline, in fact, is the way that it's taught. That we're supposed to go and discipline those who quote-unquote sin, and if they don't listen, we're supposed to kick them out of the church. Is how we talk about it. But then we're hit with this verse within that reading where two or three are gathered. In my name, I am there among them. Because the problem is, is that our traditional understanding of what we think of as sin in the church, church discipline, all those things are actually destroyed by this verse because this verse is actually talking about being gathered around for the sake of mercy for the sake of Christ, for the sake of grace. Why? Because we go out there and it's very hard to hear. It's very hard to find. Where two or three are gathered, it should be there that Christ is in our midst, that we might hand him to one another. So it begins by saying, if your brother or sister sins against you, it should actually say when, right? Those of us who think that you come into the church and a brother or sister in the church isn't going to sin against you, I hate to break it to you, but if you take two sinners and put them in a room together, it's only a matter of time. It only, it's only a matter of time before there's something that will get in between us, something that will cause a rift. And that's why we have to have Jesus there with us to take that rift away. But it says, you know, if your brother or sister sins against you, we're supposed to go privately, go just the two of us, rebuke or correct that person. Why? For condemnation? For judgment? No. Actually, for redemption. For forgiveness. Because where does it end? It says, if he listens, which is a key part, I'll get to that in a second, if he listens, you have won him. The word is actually buying back to win him back, that he was somehow captive to somebody else and you had to ransom him back. That's for the sake of redemption, of buying them back, not for condemnation. The key in all of this is that it, says, it talks about listening. My translation uses pay attention, which is kind of okay, but it's really this word to just hear, hear something. Well, what are they supposed to hear? 
We're supposed to hear the good news. It's news. It's something that is proclaimed. It's spoken that goes into our ears that we have to hear of who this Christ is. And actually says if he doesn't hear, then you're actually supposed to bring two or three mouths with you. Quite literally, two or three mouths that might witness. To what? Well, witness to the sin that was committed and then witness to the Savior that takes it away. A proclamation of the good news again. And then it says if he doesn't listen to to you or those two, it says take it to the church, take it to the assembly, take it to the congregation. And if the person doesn't listen, well, then you're supposed to treat them as a Gentile or tax collector. And this is where our church discipline or our excommunication excommunication comes into play. This is where the church has ruined itself for a couple thousand years by not understanding this. Because Gentile, ethnikos, in Matthew, it's only used four times. But the word quite literally means pagan, heathen, someone alien to the worship of God. The word quite literally means someone who doesn't know, someone who hasn't understood Someone who needs to hear again this word. Because if we read the Gospels, if we read the book of Acts, what do we discover of Gentiles, quote-unquote, or pagans? Are they ones to be kicked out? Are they ones to be separated? Are they ones to be focused on? People to go to, to bring something to them as in Christ. Go to the book of Acts, we find Peter and Cornelius. Cornelius was a centurion. Not only was he a Gentile, he was a high-ranking officer in the occupying army. And Peter is sent to him. We have Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch, someone who would have been completely outside the promises of God, and yet God says, go and speak to him. We have Paul at Athens, where he goes to the Areopagus, and he's speaking to these Gentile philosophers who are praying to an unknown God. And he has to say, oh, I know this God. Let me tell you about him. He involves repentance, but he also involves resurrection, life, forgiveness. Or we have Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman. I just read about his interaction with her in Mark this morning. Or we have him dealing with the healing of of a slave, of a centurion. Or the Samaritan woman in John 4. All these interactions with non-religious people people that we would think would be outside the promises. And then we go even worse to tax collector. I'm guessing there's not too many fans of the IRS in the room. I don't know. Maybe there's an IRS agent in here. I'm sorry. I forgive you. Um, Tax collectors were even worse because these would be people of the nation hired by an occupying force to collect money to steal from their own people in order to feed and care for the army that is occupying them. Well, this is Matthew talking about tax collectors. Who is Matthew? He's a tax collector. He was actually found doing his job, and Jesus called him. Even worse, his Hebrew name is Levi. Well, who would be named Levi? People from the tribe of Levi, who was the tribe of priests, who Matthew should have been working in the temple, but instead he was serving at a tax collector's table. And we're told to treat someone 
who's not listening to the words of repentance and faith in Christ as a tax collector. Well, what are we supposed to do? Preach to them. Speak to them of Christ. Speak to them of repentance and faith. Speak to them of death and resurrection. Treat them as one who does not know, one who has forgotten, who needs to hear the story again of radical grace, of radical forgiveness, this, this something so radical in Christ that we've forgotten it in our culture that he tells us things like, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, love your enemies. And yes, I know there are people probably in this room, people out in the world who are tired of turning cheeks, going the extra mile, loving enemies. But Christ comes to teach us that. Why? Because the opposite of that is the language of the world. And he comes to gift, gift to us the gospel, which is done even in action in loving our enemies and turning the other cheek. Well, getting back to our, where two or three are gathered, it's there in this gathering, here in this space, for instance, right now, that this should be a space of assurance that what you will hear is yes, there will be some law in talking about the fact that, for, for instance, we are, we are more likely to seek judgment and retribution than we are forgiveness. But this should be a place in which the grace and mercy of Christ is spoken of. Because it says, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. That when we gather, we have Christ here to give to one another, as I said. Radical grace, radical mercy, radical forgiveness. Forgiveness that looks nothing like recompense, looks nothing like transactionalism, but actually looks like using those keys that he talks about here. Binding and loosing. Binding to Christ. Binding people there so that they are crucified with him and raised to new life so that they are loosed from their sins, from their fear, from their shame, from judgment, from all those things. Because excommunication, pulling them away, removing from them the chance to hear gospel, robs them of the very things that Christ came to do. Excommunication quite literally means to bar them from this table, for instance. To keep them from physically receiving the Christ. So that when the day comes that I actually get to serve you from this table and place in your hands the body and blood of Jesus, saying the body of Christ given for you, the blood of Christ shed for you, it is actually an action of God gifting himself to you in forgiveness. Where in that action we come to the table saying, no, I am a sinner like everyone else and I need this Jesus more than anything. I need to feed on him. I need to be nourished by him inside and out. The failure on our part is that for too long we've been told that worship is about something we do, about some sacrifice we make, about being pure and good and holy, and we have whole denominations that will say you are not allowed to come to this table unless you think and do exactly like we do. When the Lutheran understanding of worship is God gifting to us and serving us, Him dispensing His gifts to us, even when we don't think we need them. Mike Kerrigan, who uh, writes for the Wall Street Journal every now and then, wrote this the other day. In his autobiographical Confessions, St. Augustine of Hippo admits praying as a young man, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. 
By so doing, he became the spiritual role model of late bloomers everywhere. The petition conveys a timeless truth about the human condition where often the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Still, I've wondered how could such an otherworldly saint have uttered so worldly a prayer? Centuries after St. Augustine's time, Oscar Wilde answered the question well. The only difference between saints and sinners is that every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. We can always be better tomorrow. Of course, tomorrow never comes for some, for it comes. But when it does, choosing the hard right over the easy wrong has lost its appeal. Grudges have been useful in my adult life as well, or so I thought. I convinced myself life's wrongs, no slight too small, are kindling to fuel my competitive fire, and winning ultimately leads to joy. I see now that it doesn't. Not the lasting kind, anyway. The more tomorrows become today, the more I realize it isn't firm justice I want, but tender mercy I need. The forgiveness I show is the only forgiveness I can hope to receive, no more and no less. I've got work to do. Inspired this day by St. Augustine and mindful that late bloomers must bloom sometime, I pray, Lord, make me merciful, not tomorrow, today. The church exists for the sake of mercy for the sake of forgiveness, for the sake of granting something that we don't deserve to one another. Because where else are we going to find it but in Christ? And that is why we gather on Sundays. That is why we gather in prayer together regularly. And that is what we need to be doing in the world out there. Because it's need to be heard out there just as much as in here. Thanks be to God. Amen.